might be in my imagination, but I'm thinking that the thanks be to God gets a little quieter every week through Ezekiel. Like, you're going to be judged. So let's try it again. The word of God for the people of God? Yeah, I mean it. So what do we have in this text for which we should say thanks be to God? The topic today is the justice of God, and I want to begin with a quote from C.S. Lewis. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock, and the dock is where the accused person sits. The modern man is the judge, God is in the dock. Now, modern man is quite the kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who, commit, who permits war and poverty and disease, modern man is ready to listen to the defense. The trial may even result in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now, Lewis wrote these words about seven decades ago in 1948, just after World War II, And the complaint that modern man had about God at that time were things like wars and poverty and disease. That is, things that happen to lots of people. In my view, in the the more uh, 70 years later in our age, God is in the dock more often for what he does to individuals, not necessarily societies and culture. And we say, like, how can God let this happen to me? We're likely to blame other nations for wars or... Uh, you know, human behavior for hurricanes and storms or mass shootings. But when it comes to my life and individual, I'm going like, God is in the dock and he needs to explain to me why this happened in my world, whatever it is. And so it is that I begin a sermon on the justice of God somewhat defensively on God's behalf. I feel like I need to defend God against accusations that he is unfair or disinterested, that he needs to answer for not making our lives a little bit easier or more comfortable, that he is in the, indeed in the dock. And my job today is to be his defense attorney and let you feel better about God. I'm hoping that you'll give him a break, like maybe let him off on probation, that if God will turn around, is that really what my role is today? that I'm God's defender, I want to tell you God needs no defense when we talk about the justice of God. So to wrestle with this theme of God's justice, we return to the writings and antics of the prophet Ezekiel. As chapter 14 opens, and we didn't read this part, so we didn't have the whole passage there, but as chapter 14 opens, a group of exiles, excuse me, a group of elders among the exiles approaches Ezekiel. So let me set this for you again. We are about 600 years before Christ. Ezekiel was in the second of three waves of exiles that left Jerusalem. In the first wave, there was Daniel, 605 B.C. In the second wave, in 597 B.C., there was Ezekiel. He was the son of a priest, destined to be a priest. He was about 25 years old when he was taken into exile, and his writings started about five years after that. Still ahead is the final group of exiles in 586 B.C. when the city of Jerusalem will be burned and razed. And so the exiles wanted to believe that their refugee resettlement was temporary, that God was going to come through, that Jerusalem was going to stand. And these elders come 
to Ezekiel, probably wanting a good word from God for them, a word of hope, like this exile is temporary, and you keep saying all kinds of horrible things, can you give us some good news? Instead, they get a sermon, the first 11 11 verses of chapter 14, they get a sermon on idolatry. Nobody likes a sermon on idolatry, unless it's somebody else's idolatry, and then it's okay, right? So I suspect this sermon on idolatry surprised the elders because they believed that the problem of idolatry was still back in Jerusalem where there were statues of false gods even inside the temple and there were drawings of animals that people bowed down to, including Baal. So Ezekiel's surprise is that you are idolatrous as well, you exiles, you elders of the exiles, and your idolatry, he says, is of the heart. So nobody had brought like statues into their community in exile, but Ezekiel says you are still idolatrous. Now what does he mean by that? Maybe their idolatry was for the city of Jerusalem itself, that somehow it was the city that mattered and not that it was the city of God. Maybe it was political, that a new leader would rise and throw down Nebuchadnezzar and let everybody go home. Or maybe it was materialism, a longing for the jobs and homes that they had left behind. Or maybe their idols of their hearts were their children and other family members that they had left behind in Jerusalem, and they didn't care as much about what happened with God or the city or the temple as they did about their own sons and daughters back home. And maybe they said something like this to Ezekiel. You've been telling us God is going to allow the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem because its idolatry has polluted the temple. But not everyone back in Jerusalem is wicked. Not everybody is worshiping idols. Many of us left our children and our grandchildren there. Won't God spare the city on the behalf of the few righteous people who are there? And if God doesn't do that, is God still just? Will he condemn and destroy everyone including our loved ones. That seems to be the occasion on which the passage that Pastor Lori read comes from the Lord through Ezekiel. And so we read in verse 13 that the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel in response to whatever it was that the elders pleaded with him. And once again, God addresses Ezekiel as the son of man, which means basically you're immortal. You're like everyone else. You're in the same camp. And uh, Ezekiel tells the people about four theoretical uh, disasters that could happen to a country. So he's not even talking about Israel right now, but suppose one of these were to happen to a country. And these are the four that he lists. But before I do that, what would be the worst four things that you, that you fear could happen to America or let's just say to Hickory? So I would say probably a, a terrorist attack or maybe a nuclear terrorist attack we would fear. Maybe a Category 7 hurricane that nobody's ever seen before. Or it could be disruption, the power grid, which shuts down all communication, capacity to talk to anyone, function as a society. Maybe an earthquake. So what, what can you imagine would be the four worst things that could happen? Well, in Ezekiel's day, the four worst things that could happen were, number one, a famine. Because there weren't, you know, food supply chains all over the world. And so if there's a famine... People are going to starve. People are going to die. Second, 
wild beasts. Their homes did not have locks and doors like we do. So if there's a lion roaming through your town, your family is very uh, susceptible. The sword, because even there were, there were certainly walled cities, but armies could eventually get through walled cities as they did. But most people didn't live in walled cities. They lived in smaller villages. And so some uh, invading group of swordsmen could slaughter their whole families. This is like somebody coming into your neighborhood with uh, machine guns. And we've seen that happen in public places. But, I mean, this is the parallel here, right? So somebody comes into our village with the sword, a whole army of them. And then the final one was the plague. And so they didn't have hospitals or medicines and labs. They didn't understand viruses and bacteria. And oftentimes a plague would just wipe out an entire community or an entire region of a country. And so it was terrifying for the ancient readers to imagine any one of those four things, much less all four of those things, coming into Jerusalem. And Ezekiel is answering this question. Wouldn't God spare a country, and again, it's a theoretical country, wouldn't God spare a country from these judgments if there are at least some good people in it? You may recall the story of Abraham bargaining with God about Sodom and Gomorrah, and God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom, but Abraham's nephew lives there. And Abraham says, well, what if there are 50 righteous people? And God says, okay, I'll spare if there are 50. So Abraham's going like, there might not be 50. What about 45? And there's kind of this reverse sort of auction going on as Abraham gets all the way down to, what about 10? Would you spare the city if there's only 10 good people in Sodom? And God says, okay, I'll spare it if there are 10. But there aren't 10, and so the city is destroyed, right? So maybe that's in the mind as uh, Ezekiel gives them this scenario now. And what he says is, God is basically, through Ezekiel, cutting short that whole argument. He says, let's suppose there are only three. Let's suppose there are only three righteous people in Jerusalem, but suppose the three are Job and Daniel and Noah. Okay, now what do they have in common? They are all three extremely righteous, pious, godly people in the midst of other people who are not. All right, so that's why they're used here. So Noah, we've got the flood, but except for him and his family, like everybody else is wicked. And we've got uh, Daniel in there. And Daniel's relatively new, but it seems like he had already attained legendary status for the reasons that you know, like he resisted the king's food. And then we've got Job, who is faithful to God and is even called God righteous. And God says, even if Job and Noah and Daniel are in a country, if the whole country wanders away from me, I will not spare them from wild beasts and plague and famine and sword. So what's he saying? You're concerned about your sons and daughters back in Jerusalem? God is not going to spare your sons and daughters. Now you think about that as a parent, no matter how old your children are or what they've done or how close they are to God, the words are repeated over and over and over again, even if those three righteous men are there your sons and daughters will not be spared. And Ezekiel continues then, that was about a hypothetical country. He says, when God judges Jerusalem, all four of those things are going to happen. But then he adds, there will be mercy. There will be some survivors. There will be a remnant that will include some of your sons and daughters, not all of them. And when they come to you here in exile, 
Listen to the word. You will be consoled. This is verse 22 if you're following along. You will be consoled. You will be comforted about all the disasters that I have brought on Jerusalem. Now, I'm not sure whether the consolation is because some of your children were rescued or maybe because their children will report how much evil there was in Jerusalem and you will see that God did the right thing. But then in verse 23, the elders will be consoled when they know the whole truth through these exiles. Why? It says, you will know, he says to the exiles, that I, God, have done nothing without cause. Truth is essential to justice. Justice is almost never done unless you know the whole truth. That's why we, we tend to complain about our legal system and how slowly it grinds when someone has done obviously a horrible crime, obviously to everyone, but we don't allow lynching. That's also illegal. We don't allow the crowds to execute justice because we need to give the system time, as much time as it takes, so that all the facts are on the table, because without truth, you can't be sure of justice. So God says, when you know everything that I know, you will see that what I did was not without cause. So here's my sermon in one sentence for today. If you only remember one thing, or you want to write down one thing, this is the one thing. If you knew what God knows you would trust what God does. That has to do with the nations, and it has to do with your individual life. If you knew what God knows, you would trust what God does. God knows all, and because of that, we can trust his justice. So Ezekiel is saying when the last, waves of eg last wave of exiles arrives in Babylon from Jerusalem, God will be vindicated. Because you will know the whole truth. You will know the picture. You're understandably anxious and accusatory until you know the whole story. But when you know all the facts, you will see that God had cause. Cause to bring judgment and cause to spare the remnant. So, as I've been doing each week, the question comes, what does that have to do with us? What do we do with this? You see, I believe all the Bible is the Word of God and that these writings are inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved by the Jewish and then the Christian communities for us because all of them are profitable. All the Bible is profitable for our faith and practice. But it's precisely my high view of Scripture that causes me to point out also it's a misuse of Scripture to take everything that's spoken to someone else in the Bible and apply it precisely to us. The situation is different. The circumstances are different. So to sort of state the obvious, America is not Israel, right? So to say that God is going to judge America in the same way, I would have two responses for that. One, the scripture does say, if a country turns against me, there is a generalization, not just about Israel. But the event that we're talking about is unique in the Bible in terms of God's judgment on Israel. There's no, no other nation has ever been Israel, and no other event has happened exactly like the exile in 586 B.C. and the destruction of Jerusalem. So then, what does this have to do with us? My answer, as I've said each week in our studies of Ezekiel, is this God is our God. It's the same God, right? This God is our God. So what do we learn from God in this story from Ezekiel chapter 14? Three lessons. Number one, idolatry still matters. 
and that's probably too weak, I could say God still loathes idolatry. It's an offense to his sovereignty, but it also is a destruction of us. He hates idolatry because of what it does to us. God still hates idolatry. Idolatry still matters. So, in these sermons, I'm breaking my usual rule, and I'm pulling in some of the New Testament because I want a little bit of New Testament perspective on some of these themes in Ezekiel. And it's true that the word idolatry doesn't occur as often in the New Testament as it does in the Old. It might surprise you to know that Jesus never used the word idol or idolatry, not even once in the Gospels that I can find. Why is that? An interesting historical fact, when Israel went into exile because of its idolatry, they never again from that time until now worshipped false gods in that same way, meaning they never set up shrines to pagan gods. You will be hard-pressed to find a single Jewish community, even in the diaspora, spread out all over the world, that sets up idols on the high places like the pre-exile Israelites did. All that to say, when Jesus was uh, exercising his ministry, idolatry in that way was not an issue for the Jewish people. Jesus dealt with idolatry on lots of different levels, and I'll get to them in the moment, but not in this kind of way that it's dealt with in the book of Ezekiel. So, there are places in the New Testament where we hear about idolatry in that very physical way, people having I images, but generally it's talking about the pagans out there. So Paul, when he shows up in the city of Athens, is distressed to see that the whole city is full of idols. But it didn't happen in Jerusalem in Paul's day. All right, Jesus, we know, went to Caesarea Philippi that was full of idols, but he didn't actually attack the pagan culture. His strategy was, I'm going to I'm going to uh, train my disciples, and I'm going to build my church, and the church is gonna, uh, going to change the world. However, if you think of idolatry only as a statue somewhere, then you are mistaken, for idolatry is deceptive and multi-layered. If idolatry is not a statue, it is a substitute for God. So the Apostle Paul uses the word idolatry several times, usually in one of his sin lists when he's talking to the church, and in one very telling passage, he tells the Ephesians that if you are greedy, that a greedy person is an idolater, and an idolater will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know what all he means by greedy, but that's sort of frightening to me. Like, if I'm more about my stuff, my things, and I need to hold on to them, and I don't share it, and I just want more, isn't that greed? And Paul says that greed, that substitute for God, is idolatry, and idolaters do not inherit the kingdom of God. So anything that I serve that replaces and displaces God at the center of my life is an idol. Wealth, how much I have in the bank account or in my investments. Sex, my country, beauty, fitness, my political party, no matter which one it is the desire to travel and enjoy more of the world, sports, my favorite team, health, family, pleasure, alcohol, drugs, shopping, food. Need I continue? Anything in my life that becomes a substitute for God, that becomes more important to me than God, that I think about more than I think about God, is an idol. 
And sometimes there are tangible evidences of that idolatry, as in almost all of the instances I've already mentioned. There is a, a financial statement. There is a person in whom I have desire. There is a gym where I go for my fitness. There is a political party that I can name and identify with. There is a team that I love that I center my whole schedule around. There is uh, a particular substance that gives me relief. Those are all idols. Sometimes there's a thing. But sometimes it's not a thing. And this is what Ezekiel is doing. Like you don't need a thing to have idolatry in your heart. Sometimes it's just inside. The desire for revenge. I'm going to get that person back is idolatry. It's a defense mechanism for how I treat other people. Like they don't deserve my kindness or my grace. Pride is idolatry. That in some sense my sins are less offensive to God than somebody else's sins, or my spiritual practice is better to God than somebody else's. So therefore, I can't, have, I can't avoid my spiritual discipline on any given day because that, will, that, because that will somehow diminish me in the eyes of God or of others. That's idolatry. So whenever, whatever it is that I can't get enough of, that grows an addiction inside of me, whatever I obsess over, is idolatry. And I'm not just speaking to you, I'm speaking to me. Because for me, it's this thing here, like, or the varieties of it. Like when I'm not with it and it's not running my life, I actually get a little bit anxious, right? It's with me 24-7. No more than 10 minutes, and that's probably in the shower when this thing isn't somewhere close by, except on Sunday afternoons when I take my nap. So don't call me Sunday afternoons. I leave my phone downstairs. But you get my point, right? Whatever it is that I obsess over and the absence of it makes me anxious or fearful, that's my idol. And why does all that matter? Because ultimately all idolatry substitutes something or someone for God. And at the root of the substitute is the self. Now we have an entire culture that lives by the mantra, you have a right to be happy, to make all your own decisions, and to get all you can out of life. And that idolatry, as well as any other, will destroy you and your relationships and maybe even your eternity. No wonder John, who is the apostle of love, ends his first and longest letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Yes, even in the New Testament, idolatry still matters. Second lesson we take from this text, God is still just. The justice of God means that God always does the right thing. Why? Because he always has all the truth. So if you know what God knows, you will trust what God does. If justice demands the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, then God is the only one who can exercise ultimate just. The word justice is, of course, tied to the word judge, and the reason we are not to judge others is because only God knows everyone's heart, and God is the one who will judge us if we do. But that also means that we don't have the right to judge God. We don't know everything that he does. We can't put God in the dock. It's not our responsibility to declare whether or not God has done the right thing or God will do the right thing. So people often ask me, like, Pastor Bob, what do you think about, you know, uh, the doctrine of hell? Are you really, like, you think God's going to do that? Is that fair for God to send people to hell forever and ever? Or what, what about people that have never heard? Like, can God not allow them into heaven? And my answer typically is this, somewhere in there, look, God is God, and I'm not God, and whatever God will, does will be the right thing. 
So after the final judgment, when it all sort of weighs out, I'm not lifting my hand going like, "Uh, God, you messed up there. If I don't believe in the justice of God, I don't believe in God at all. So if I know what God knows, I will trust what God does. That's enough for me. I don't have to answer all of the specifics. So then this theme of judgment, however, still carries over into the New Testament. Why does Jesus say not to judge others? Because you too will be judged. Jesus says the Father has entrusted all judgment to him. That's in John 5. Paul tells those same Athenians that have all those idols that Jesus will judge the world. I'm I'm quoting you New Testament verses on God as the judge, okay? Jesus will judge the world with justice. He writes to the Romans that God will judge people's secret thoughts through Jesus Christ. How do you like that one? 2 Timothy 4.1 is the basis for the words we will say in the Apostles' Creed shortly, that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. To judge. James reminds grumbling Christians, how bad of a sin do you think grumbling is like on the scale of what matters to God? James tells them not to grumble, and then he says the judge is standing at the door. Revelation says the books will be opened and the dead will be judged according to what they have done. Judgment isn't always negative, of course. People are acquitted when they uh, face a judge as well. But how many of us really want to sort of put God in the dock and declare him as being guilty because he hasn't done the right things for us? So justice is a New Testament theme. It's not just an Old Testament theme. Judgment is a New Testament theme, not just an Old Testament theme. But that brings me to my wonderful third takeaway from this passage because I'm hoping you're a little nervous right now. Mercy always has the last word. Now that's true in Ezekiel because even embedded, it's a little harder to find in Ezekiel, but even embedded in our passage, did you miss it? There is mercy. Some of your sons and daughters will be spared. There will be survivors. The whole place deserves judgment, but some will be spared. And Ezekiel's whole book actually is uh, filled with the phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord. So we're going to talk about the heart of God next week, but even in the context of judgment and God doing the right thing to condemn people for their sins, there are hints everywhere in Scripture that God's true heart is mercy and that mercy will ultimately triumph over judgment. Mercy and justice are never in competition But God's mercy will triumph, and that's where we get to the most beautiful of all New Testament themes about what do we do with this idolatry that is in our hearts. So I think it's the wrong thing for you to take away from this message. Boy, the pastor preached from idolatry, and I'm feeling terrible about myself. And, you know, like, I guess I'm going to hell too because of all my idolatry. It's true I'm an idolater as well. I was with somebody yesterday who uh, is going through a tough time, and I just asked him, like, how are you and God doing? And in one of the, uh, in, in part, part of his response was, I sort of think of a, of a scale balancing. And out there somewhere, like if you do bad things, then bad things come to you. And it all kind of, you got to do a little bit more good, so good will come to you. And I said in so many words, I've got some good news for you, my friend. There is a scale, if you want to think of it that way. But the scale isn't that I'm hovering somewhere around 49 or 51 percent, and I'm not sure where it's going. The scale is actually that I'm at zero and Jesus is at 100, right? And that what Jesus did when he died is he took all of my sins 
and he put them on himself and he actually reversed that scale. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus took the full weight of God's judgment and punishment on him, all of it. We preach idolatry today for two reasons. One is humility, so that all of us will know I also deserve God's judgment. And then we turn to the cross. And we recognize that Jesus took that judgment for us and that I am absolutely free. There is nothing on my side of the scale anymore. It was all totally paid for by Jesus and his holiness is now how God sees me. So every time we preach judgment, if we don't add that mercy has the last word on the cross and that by faith in Jesus Christ, we can be delivered from that fear that God is somehow going to come down on us for our idolatry. So we, we preach idolatry to remind us how much we need the cross. And the second reason we preach on idolatry is because at the end of the day, even after knowing that God has forgiven all of our sins, our desire is not out of fear, but out of deep gratitude. We say, Lord, yep, you see me as perfect, but I know those idols are still in my heart, and I need the Holy Spirit's help to take the next step in rooting them out because I want nothing in my life to ever consciously take your place in my world. So that's the good news, my friend. Don't go out of here going like, yeah, I feel so low today. Go out of here. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior and your Lord and all the weight of your hope and your destiny is on Jesus, go out of here saying, wow, what a God. What a God that he's extended that kind of mercy to me. And then go out of here saying, but boy, I just don't want anything to be more important to me than Jesus on this day.